there's a lot to love about Ireland. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. While Ireland continues to grapple with an economic downturn, there's no dampening the Irish spirit. The legends and traditions that give the Irish their resilient character go deep, and they include a kind of travel that still sounds like fun today. And if you think about it, there's a really cool way to travel back in those days. The Shanachie would drift around Ireland going from house to house, castle to castle, and would earn his keep or her keep by telling stories. Irish travel expert Stephen McPhillamy takes your calls to plan an Irish itinerary that combines ample portions of ancient mystical history with memorable modern characters. Plus, Dan Austin recommends traveling with a light heart and a free spirit allowing you to turn almost any journey into a spiritual pilgrimage. It doesn't have to be somber to have meaning. It can be fun. From the island of saints and scholars to making a pilgrim's nirvana wherever you are, there's a wee bit of magic in the air in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. The Ireland of our imaginations still exists. Ancient stone structures and lush green hills, lively music and friendly faces in small town pubs, and a story around every corner. Coming up in a bit, one of our favorite tour guides from the Emerald Isle takes your calls to give trip tips, update us on today's Ireland, and share a story or two of his own. First, Dan Austin is making a return visit to travel with Rick Steves. I'm not sure if you'd call a trip to our studio pilgrimage, but we first met Dan in 2008 when he clued us in on the pure joy of being a free-spirited road trip pilgrim. He shares some of the lessons he gleaned from the bumps and exploits of his original summer bike trip across the USA in his book, Road Trip Pilgrim. Tips like how to keep the lawn sprinklers from getting you wet when camping out overnight on a golf course. He also chronicled that trip in a book and a documentary, both titled True Fans. We've invited Dan back to tell us more about the kinds of pilgrimages he's been on lately and to inspire us to create our own do-it-yourself pilgrimage wherever our travels may take us. Anybody can be a tourist, but not anybody can travel in a way that changes their life, changes their perspective, gives them purpose. Dan Austin has done just that, and he joins us today to share his story. Dan, how did you become a road trip pilgrim? I I think it was, you know, it was something that developed really young, you know, wanting to explore, to travel, but also to have a deeper experience with that, you know, with oneself as well as with people you met, with the area, with the landscape. I think the trip that really got it going for me and was a journey across America, a bike trip across America from Venice Beach to Boston I did with my brother and my best friend back in the 90s. How old were you when you did that? I was 23. And you set out from California on a bicycle. You guys are basketball fans, so you're visiting different courts and stuff. Yeah, we, we, you know, we had the, the Ark of the Covenant, our bike trailer behind my bike, <laughs> and we had two basketballs in the trailer. We had one basketball we played with, and then another basketball, a pristine, never played with NBA basketball that we had signed by folks across America. So you wrote a book about that, True Fans, but I'm holding here a book called The Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide that came after that. People think, you know your obvious pilgrimages when you when you go to some great temple or some cathedral or or some pyramid what does pilgrimage mean to you for a long time the idea of a pilgrimage was kind of ensconced in a, a religiosity and that's perfectly fine but i think that there is also this sense of going on a journey to a place that means something special to you that doesn't necessarily have to have any sort of religious overtones and i think that for me even though our end destination was the Basketball Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. you know, hardly the Vatican, you know. It's this this journey that nevertheless was both whimsical, fun, but also very spiritual in yeah. a way. You know, just camping on, on a, a lawn somewhere, on a golf course, just uh, you know, hopping on your bike and, and cruising across the plains and getting lost in those epic fields. You know, there's just something very spiritual about that. And so I, I think that you, you don't have to go on a you know, an old school pilgrimage to have a very spiritual journey. Well, that's what I'm always struck by when we think of the community Santiago is some people are going very old school. You see Catholic pilgrims from Lithuania marching through with a crucifix on their shoulders, you know, (laughs) and chanting the whole way. And then you see Buddhists, you see tree huggers, you see skateboarders, and everybody's on a pilgrimage. It's interesting to think that non-spiritual people can have a spiritual experience. For sure. And again, I think it comes down to the idea that however you want to go on that journey, that is great. You know, for us, going across America and having this sort of basketball theme and biking was 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 great. But somebody else, that may not mean anything to them. And that's perfectly fine. And if, you know, if, if you want to climb Craig Patrick in Ireland in bare feet, well, that's what you can do if that's what makes sense to you. But I think that for most folks, finding a location and a journey that has special significance and doing it however you want carries with it spirituality. 
So you've been at this for a while now. When you go on a trip, do you have a pilgrim's perspective kind of goal? I mean, will you go to Hawaii or Baja California without some sort of a highfalutin pilgrims kind of thing? <laughs> I mean, you know. Well, I, I think there's different degrees. You know, when we biked across America, that was a big trip. You know, we really went after it. We wanted to see our country. We wanted to come back different people. Right. But you can have the same sort of perspective in kind of a, a truncated way, I guess, in, in a condensed sense, just going down to the grocery store. If you want to just get out and just breathe the air of, you know, you've been inside all day and you just want to walk through the city and just embrace the city, it doesn't have to be some great edict, but it can be this still a very powerful quest just you know, walking down the grocery that's store. That's almost like we've all had friends or a lot of us have friends that have had a terminal illness explained to them and then they've got a few months to live or somebody who thought they were going to die and then they came through it and they have a different outlook. And it seems like it'd be a good idea to get that outlook before you're going to lose your life or before you've almost <laughs> lost it. I mean, it's there. And if, yeah. you, if you travel with that sort of uh, vividness and that awareness and sleep on the top of a mountain, even if you can afford a hotel. Absolutely. And I think the key is that it doesn't have to be somber to have meaning. Right. You know, it can be fun and have meaning. I think sometimes meaningfulness is often linked with, with somberness. So it could with, be a celebration. You it could, could be a celebration. You could find what's the highest altitude pub in North Wales, <laughs> and you could go there and drink that beer. Well, you know, our first bike journey, we rode our bikes to a sports bar in Spokane, Washington. <laughs> and I won't go into the whole story behind that, but it was a sports bar, and yet that journey had a lot of significance yeah. to us. And it, there was spirituality on that journey. It was wonderful. We jumped in creeks, and we camped all over the place, and we had a great time. Now, a lot of times when you think of pilgrims, you think of pain, self-inflicted suffering. You can walk Croke Patrick. The weather's going to be miserable in Ireland. You can walk up there with shoes on and be miserable. But pilgrims do it, and they've done it for centuries, barefoot. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you so much need to self-inflict pain to have meaning on a journey. I think there's something to be said for, you know, for walking, for riding your bike, for, for doing, doing something. doing it under your own power. Exactly. That's but the big thing, you, yeah. know, you have to exert yourself. I think you'll get more out of it if you do that. Um, have I was you ever asked, done anything that was intentionally uh, painful? Well, I mean, I don't think it was pain for the sake of pain. Probably eating the kind of food you cooked on the road was... Yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, all my life I've looked at pilgrims climbing the holy stairs in Rome, the Scala Santa, on their knees, because that's what pilgrims do. There's two mm -hmm. kinds of tourism in Rome. There's typical tourists, and then there's pilgrims that go there, and they have parallel universes of checklists of things to see. And every pilgrim that goes to Rome wants to climb the holy steps, the mm -hmm. steps that Jesus climbed uh, in the mansion of Pontius Pilate on the day he was condemned, that mm -hmm. Emperor Constantine's mother brought back from her trip to the Holy Land. And tourists always look at these pilgrims climbing the steps on their knees. And I decided last year, I'm going to do that myself. And I picked up the little brochure that explained what you're supposed to meditate <laughs> on with every step, and I've never done anything on my knees like that before. It was so painful. And suddenly all of the painful Christian art all around me, it was like, I can relate, you know. There's yeah. a, uh, Jesus was on the cross ahead of me and my knees were screaming and I was surrounded by these nuns. It's a different experience. And I would imagine there's a reason pilgrims climb a mountain on bare feet. They, they, they think about every step. I think as well about uh, Mount Kailash in Tibet, you know, the, the Tibetans circumambulating and prostrating themselves the whole way. It takes days, and that lends extra meaning. So again, it So comes, don't knock it unless you've hey, tried it. I guess so. I mean, <laughs> what, it's, it's up to the individual. That's the whole key. It's like everybody has a different depiction of what meaning is and what, how that connects with them, and, you know, that's, that's okay. So what is pilgrim's nirvana? You write about that in your book. That's that sense when you're on the road... And you suddenly are just swept away in the moment and mm -hmm. whenever you are. It can happen anywhere. I remember my friend Clint and I were hitchhiking down the coast of Maine, 2 o'clock in the morning, trying to get to Logan Airport in Boston for an early flight. Didn't think we were going to make it, but nonetheless, we were just walking along. The leaves were kind of going across the road. It was October, and boom, there we were. We were just lost to the road. It was like, wow. Pilgrim's Nirvana. Yeah, we are just lost to the road. It was great. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Dan Austin, and, and Dan's written a couple of fascinating books. His book, True Fans is an account of his bike ride from California all the way to the East Coast, kind of an inspiration for just being on the road. And then he wrote after that a book that gives you all the skills and brainstorms. It's funny, but it's also thought-provoking, The Road Trip Pilgrim's Guide. Dan's website is truefans.com. Almost everybody's going to have a chance to travel, but not very many people really break out of that predictable routine where, mm -hmm. they, where they have that spark. It can be hard, you know. It's so much is about you know everything being regimented. You know, uh, yeah. my brother and I were in Vietnam, and we we just wanted to get a ride out to Katba and do our mm -hmm. own thing. But we couldn't get out there without being on some sort of tour. Yeah, and you know, tours certainly have their place, but yeah. I think sometimes you're you're kind of pushed toward that, and you mm -hmm. really have to make a real effort to kind of break that. One moment. of the best experiences I've ever had on the road was I was up in uh, Chiang Mai, 
in mm. Thailand, and I wanted to get back to Bangkok. And I could have just taken a flight or taken a straight train, and I just I'm going to go overland. Yeah. And just, you know, hitchhike, get on a little boat, pop into Dolmush or whatever, or a little minibus, and... I tell you, there was more experiences <laughs> on that little ad lib, no yeah. no guidebook, you know, yeah. nothing, nothing famous. I already saw the famous temples and so on. Not many people just take that step. Dan, talk about some of the classic the sacred places around the world that you might want to travel to. Hot springs, sacred mountains, pyramids, and so on. Oh, wow. Well, you know, obviously there's the go-to places. Angkor Wat is wonderful. I love Angkor Wat. You know, Machu Picchu and Peru. Uh, so why would you love Angkor Wat or Machu Picchu? Well, you know, these are sites that have a deep cultural significance to our planet. They're places that are just loaded with history. And those places are great. But I've often found that the greater connection I feel and the greater transcendence that happens on these journeys happens in places that are very unexpected. Mm -hmm. Hot springs are great. I remember there's this hot spring in Iceland, the northern fjords of Iceland, this little town called and um, Say it again. Talking the fjord there. I practice that. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty good. <laughs> I spent a couple of days with this little family in this tiny little fishing village, like 130 people. And they took me to their go-to hot spring on top of this mountain overlooking the fjord. And, you know, it, wow. no, tourists don't go there. Nobody yeah. does. But it's the little hometown hot spring. And that, to me, was just as good, if not better. than. So this is outdoors? Other. Totally outdoors, overlooking the fjords. It was wonderful. In Iceland? In Iceland, yeah. Like glaciers around you and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That must have been really an amazing scene, a conviviality with nature. And with my friends, and too. With your friends? Yeah, yeah, they didn't even speak English. I've heard Icelanders say that their economic collapse is almost a blessing because now they spend more time in hot springs with each other. <laughs> Just getting it back to basics and a- getting absolutely. a simple life and the beautiful things in life like that. Like when I was in Egypt at the pyramids of Giza, you know, they say if you go right to the center of the biggest pyramid, there's a special kind of energy. Mm. So I climbed into the middle of the pyramid and I got right to the middle there and I just, you know, you're just silent and you're just feeling, okay, do I feel anything? And I really didn't. But, but <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we, we load these places with expectations where we expect just, you know, to get there and, you know, boom. And I, I think there is definitely some energy to these places. A lot of these sacred sites, like Shart, for instance, was a, a forest sacred to the Druids before it was uh, a cathedral. So there's definitely something to these sites. But yeah. I, I, I do think that we bring a lot of it with us and that any place we go can possibly become sacred, maybe not to everyone, right. but to us. And that's what really counts. You know that term chakra? Oh, yeah, yeah. Because I was in uh, Poland, and there's a chakra there in, in Krakow somewhere, and people are just standing around leaning up against a wall, you know, like I was in the middle of the period trying to feel the chakra. <laughs> All right, am I there? And uh, nothing happened, you know. On the other hand, you can find yourself, if you're open to it, just hiking on the beach, looking at the stars reflecting in the surf. You know, I, I think those things are a gift. I think that if you look for it, if you expect it, it probably won't come. It's like love, you know? You kind of like have to ease back and just sort of let the universe take its own course and good things come to you. Can't force yeah. it. Let the magic happen. Dan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. We have web links to Dan Austin's original bike trip across America and to his foundation, which provides bicycles to young people in the developing world. To find links to each week's guests on Travel with Rick Steves, start with the radio tab at ricksteves.com. Next week, we'll delve further into the pilgrim sites of Italy and hear what it's like to walk the famous trail to Santiago in Spain. Up next, our Irish friend Stephen McPhillamy joins us again for more travel advice and a few tall tales. We're at 877-333-RICK. It's amazing the impact the little island of Ireland has on our outlook and on our psyche. Three, four, five million people in Ireland, but there must be 30 million Americans of Irish heritage. And when we're dreaming about traveling in Europe, Ireland is a very popular spot. I'm joined today by Stephen McPhillamy, a good friend of mine who's a tour guide in Ireland. He lives in the north of Ireland, and we're going to talk today about how you can put your travel dreams, taking you to Ireland, into focus. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Rick. Thanks for having me in. 
when you think about traveling in Ireland, I just love to, as any tourist, you know, see Ireland sort of in our almost clichetic fairy tale view of that. And it seems to me the government is actually interested in preserving that in, in spite of the onslaught of the globalized world and economic difficulties. The government's paying good money to keep traditional lifestyles alive. Is that surviving even in economic hard times? Yeah, I think it is. Like in Ireland, the Irish language is protected. There's funding available and grants available and tax breaks and other incentives to people who speak the language on a daily basis. There's not a lot of money around these days. We are definitely suffering financially, but it's good to see that the initiatives that are cultural are still being preserved. Stephen, when I travel, I try to connect with local people by doing something local people do. What would be the national sport of Ireland, and how would we enjoy that as a tourist? All right, you see, we have um, several national sports. Like, for example, rugby is very big, but not every Irish person plays rugby. It's quite often in posh schools it's taught, so a lot of working-class kids wouldn't play it, wouldn't be familiar with it, uh, but not always the case. Uh, Soccer is big in the urban areas. Uh, Gaelic football, which is our indigenous game, played with the hands and the feet, that's played pretty much everywhere, but not again, not by everyone. And then you have hurling, the sort of super fast game with sticks played on grass. But there's vast parts of Ireland where hurling isn't really played. Horse racing is very big. It would be probably a big national sport that all Irish people would possibly go and watch. So if I had a visitor with me and they wanted a real authentic experience, my number one would be to bring them to a hurling game mm-hmm. because they could see soccer and rugby anywhere. Right. Then I'd take them to Gaelic football. But the problem with Gaelic football is, even though that's my favourite game, if I brought you to a Gaelic football game, you'd love it for the first 30 minutes. And then you'd probably think that's enough, just like I feel when I see baseball. So it's the same, same scenario, but hurling is different. It's, it's fast and it's semi-violent. It's like warriors playing with the clash of the ash when the sticks crash together. But our, our horse racing is big. I know you have horse racing in America too, then people might say, well, we can do that here. But the horse racing scene in Ireland is just, it's more jovial. There's no um, pretentiousness about it. It's not very snobby. Uh, it's just it's not re- very polished. It's very folky. I went out to the horse stadium, I think, in Dublin, and I got to talk to the kids with their horses, and they were aspiring to win this next race, and they were just out there chatting with people. Yeah, and it's very laid back. It's very it's very relaxed. You'd have big tents where people are drinking and singing and, you know, people cheering on the horses like extra passionately, and I, I think the horse racing would be a, a big one, but my number one authentic experience would be hurling. Go to a hurling match. Yeah, they're not going to see that every day. And Ireland's been famously booming with its Celtic tiger economy, but uh, it's changed now. Yeah, I've never seen anything change as quick in two or three years. I mean, of all the issues in Ireland at the moment, the economy is the big one. Everything from abortion and divorce, they're all being sidelined now. All everyone is talking about is the economy. How on God's earth did we go from being the Celtic tiger to being what one American journalist said was Aaron go broke? You know, like Aaron Gobra. Yeah. Aaron Gobra, what is that? Aaron Gobra, sorry, means Ireland forever. It's an old battle cry from the, right. from the days of old. So Aaron Gobra. Aaron Gobra. Your economy was so hot, you imported 100,000 Polish laborers, right? Yeah. Where are they now? Well, half of the Polish have gone back home because they're building stadiums for the European Soccer Championships in 2012. In Poland? In, in Warsaw, yeah, they've gone back over. And there's signs on some of the construction sites there saying no Irish. <laughs> yeah, remarkable. Like, I just, you know, like for years we had Polish people coming in. And now it's completely reversed. So now Poland. the Irish are looking for work in Poland. Yeah, oh, totally. Uh, Poland's Amazing. come out of recession. We're in recession. We have 14% unemployment. 14%. You know, we've gone from no unemployment to 14%. We were the Celtic Tiger. Now we're completely busted. We're cutting teachers' salaries, nurses' salaries. Just, It's just scandalous what went on. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Stephen McPhillamy about Ireland. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Jean's on the phone from Williamstown, Massachusetts. Jean, thanks for your call. Hi, how are you? Doing great. Do you have a trip coming up in Ireland? Yes, we do. It will be our second. And what are your plans? Well, we'll be starting in Dublin again, and we are planning on going to Connemara and then north, where we haven't been before. But we had been to Newgrange and loved just the way they've kept the whole area so that you still get that sense of what it must have been like 5,000 years ago. And I'd love to know if there's anything else like that in Ireland to visit, uh, especially in the West and Northwest. Well, I'm glad to hear you're going up to the Northwest because that's my territory up there in Donegal and Derry. When you go up, there's a county called Sligo. Well, that, hopefully that'll be on your itinerary between yes, uh, Connemara and uh, Donegal. It's associated with an ancient warrior queen called Queen Maeve. 
and her tomb is up there on top of a big mountain. It's thousands and thousands of rocks piled on top of where her body was placed. And there's there's passage tombs galore all over County Sligo. Newgrange, of course, is the the main mega site. Let's describe Newgrange first of all. Um, Jean said it's five thousand years old from three thousand BC. Yeah, is that right? Newgrange is basically Ireland's version of the pyramids. It's a big burial sort of necropolis, isn't it? Yeah, but it's got a spectacular setting on a nice green hill just above the River Boyne, so it's very mystical. The top of it's kind of grassy, and then it's got all these stones around the side. They're they're like quartz and moonstone. So it's kind of a, a giant football field sized stone igloo with a grassy roof, an hour north of. Dublin, yeah. and you, do you still need a reservation to go see it? If you're going in a group, you need a reservation, but if you're going individually, you'll you'll get in eventually. You can just So it's far and away the single most important prehistoric site to see in Ireland. I yeah, I think it's far and away the, the most important of any type of site. Like a, yeah. Guinness Storehouse is rightly or wrongly the number one visitor attraction, but, but, new, but, but Newgrange new, is spectacular. Newgrange, so let's remember that. But in a lot of ways, the whole island of Ireland is an open-air museum to yeah. these uh, ancient sites. And that's my point up around Sligo. There's, there's hundreds of little Newgranges all over the place. And some of them are just completely covered in grass because they've just been left. I like to see those ones too. I like to bring people to see them because they're, they're a little bit more authentic. You go to Newgrange, yeah. it is spectacular, but there will be thousands of people there sometimes. But if uh, you know what to look for, you see them subtly all over Ireland. Oh, totally. And they're always marked. You'll see an official government marker saying Neolithic site. And, of course, they won't be on the main road because those roads weren't there then. So you'll have to park up and maybe walk across a field, go by some sheep and a couple of cows or... But it's just really nice to get in and, and have that kind of authentic Irish experience. Are they on maps, if you get a, a map? Yeah, they'll be well marked on any good map that so you buy, buy from. So good, good, buy the best road map you can in Ireland and yeah. look at the key, it'd be yeah. listed. Yeah, it's listed there, yeah. And literally there's thousands of them all over Ireland. Between Dublin and Connemara and Sligo, you'd probably find three or four hundred Neolithic sites. Talk about the ring forts and the great forts in the Ring of Kerry. Yeah, we, we have this great part of our, our history where the because there were so many wars and fights between all the different clans, families or clans had to, you know, build ring forts and defend themselves from the other clans, defend their children, their women, their daughters, their cattle, whatever. Um, but some of them are still in great... There's a wonderful one on the Ring of Kerry, Stag Fort, which is excellent. There's How do you one spell up that? In, I think it's S-T-A-I-G-U-E. There's a wonderful one up in Donegal, though my personal favourite one is called Green and Aliak. It's G-R-I-N-A-N. And then A-I-L-E-A-C-H. It's just sometimes referred to as Green and Fort, but it's an old Celtic ring fort up on top of a hill, and it's where the ancient kings of Ulster used to be crowned. And you can sometimes you can see nine counties of Ulster from up there, and you can see as far as Sligo, and you can see up to the Giant's Causeway. Green, G-R-I-A-N, is the Irish word for the sun. So it was also a place to worship okay. the sun at one stage. And then, of course, Dun Angus. Is that from the same period? Dun Angus, exactly, on the Aran Islands. Will you make it to the Aran Islands, do you think? Well, I'm hoping, you know, how that depends on the weather, I think. Uh, have, you, have you been out there before? No, no. All right. Just, just on the point of the weather, like the ferry pretty much always goes because it's it's like the lifeline for the islanders. So it would take a tsunami standard wave to stop that ferry going out there. <laughs> I've gone out there some days. Yeah, you've got to just get a good Gore-Tex coat and, yeah. uh, and uh, good boots and get out there and do it. Because when but, you get to Dun Angus... You feel like you're on the end of the world. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah, you're it's incredible. How, how tall is that cliff? It must be, what, uh, several hundred, three or four hundred feet up there. And yeah. you're looking straight down at the crashing surf, and you're surrounded by a stone fort that goes back how long, Stephen? It must be, what, 4,000 years old. Yes. Uh, so it's like ancient Egypt yeah. vintage. And, and there's no fence up there. It's just really raw, historic sites. That's a beautiful sights. thing about yeah. sightseeing in yeah. Ireland. Yeah. Jean, have a great time. Thank you so much. Thanks for all the tips. Yeah, and Newgrange is the obvious, you know, pyramids of Giza kind of thing. But then remember, the whole island is riddled with subtle, private little stone circles and ring forts and passage graves. Yep, just got to get a car and be willing to stop a lot. Get a car and a good coat and a good map. Yeah. And yeah. there's always a pub nearby, right, Stephen? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. <laughs> all right, no thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Stephen McPhillamy. And Marianne's on the line in Avon Lake, Ohio. Marianne, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Have you been in Ireland lately, or do you have a plan? We have a plan to go. There's four women in their 50s just wondering what are some sites not to be missed and also about driving, if you can rent a car and drive safely around. How long have you got over there in Ireland? How long will it be? A week or um, two? Like two weeks. Oh, that's, that's nice. Yeah. Yeah. And four women in a car. That sounds like a way to go, actually. Yeah. Um, you'll fly into Dublin then and you'll probably hire a car at the airport 
Um, yeah. I, I'd really encourage you to go into Dublin. Some people say don't avoid Dublin, but I love it. It's really a cool city, friendly, welcoming. There's so much going on there. It's kind of a happening place anyway. Yeah, yeah. And we've got good roads now too. Like during the, the Celtic Tiger years when we were a rich economy, we did thankfully invest in some good stuff too. So there's there's good roads for you to enjoy driving on. Um, you know, you'll hear a few horror stories of narrow, windy country roads. And we do have those too, but there's a lot of safe roads now. So Marion's got two weeks. Very quickly, uh, let's say you spend the first three nights and two days in Dublin. Then you got about 12 days to get in your car and explore Ireland. Stephen, take us on a swing through the best look at Ireland in 10 or 12 days. Well, if I had 10 or 12 days, I'd, yeah, two or three days in Dublin, then I'd maybe do Kilkenny because it's, it's a good historic city. But you can go to Kilkenny for the day and onwards then down to Cork. So that's heading uh, south. Heading south sor- Sorry, heading south, yeah. Okay. Um, so come south down into Kilkenny. You'll be there in about two hours from Dublin. There's a good attraction, though, called Glendalough, just outside Dublin. It's where Braveheart was filmed. It's a monastic city in a, a valley with a lovely forest. And I would go out there first, maybe then move on down to Kilkenny, maybe spend a night there. Then drive across then over to Cork. Uh, Cork people, they think Cork is the greatest city in the planet. Uh, I do think it's worth seeing for a night maybe, but I'd, I'd recommend if you're going to Cork to stay out in Kinsale instead Kinsale. of Cork City. Uh, okay. Kinsale's a, a lovely little harbour town, uh, kind of posh and great restaurants, but good, vibrant scene at night. Now, this but, is the 100th anniversary of the Titanic, right? That's right, yeah. 2012. Oh, oh, yeah. okay. So that's, where's the port, Cove? Uh, Cove, uh, just outside Cork. Yeah. Uh, Cove, C-O-B-H, is where the Titanic right. picked up its last passengers. So that'll be very... And there's a great museum there. And there's yeah, a immigration museum. Oh, right. yeah. If you have any, any Irish ancestry, it might be poignant to go and visit uh, the immigration all, all museum. All my friends do. Oh, nice, yeah. And then and then you're talking Kinsale, which is the charming town in the south coast, great cuisine. Yeah, excellent cuisine there. There's a very famous restaurant called Fishy Fishy, but there's others, brilliant ones too. You can see that there's a lot of history attached because it was a a great battle was fought there in 1601, the Irish and the Spanish against the English. And of course, we we lost as usual. But um, but that that history is worth checking out. Yeah, I like the history. My destination after Cork would be would be Dingle. Get onto the Dingle Peninsula. But just before you come onto that, there's two things you might want to check out. One is in the middle of Cork City. It's called the English Market. And if you're a foodie or a, if you love olives or cheese or handmade artisan foods, that's the place to go. The Queen went to visit there when she visited Ireland in May of 2011. The Queen of England visited the oh, English market okay. and they put together this special hamper for her, right? Oh, and okay. uh, now when you go in, all they sell is uh, selling these Queen's hampers, you know. What's a hamper? Uh, just uh, like a, sorry, like a picnic basket. See, and it was Queen's all, it was basket. like they had Clonakilty sausage and black pudding and all the different local delicacies and cheeses. And, you know, just really, oh, that, that would be yeah, great. Yeah. And that, you said, is outside of Cork City. No, that's in the centre of Cork City. It's in called the, the English Market. Okay. It's, it's, it's a 400-year-old market, and it used to be just for the English. The Irish weren't allowed in. Uh, okay. So it's got a cool sort of history and a story to it. And it's, it's indoor, and it's, it's food only. It's, it's gourmet stuff. After Cork and the English Market, you might want to stop off in Killarney. Okay. Killarney is quite touristy. But it's touristy for a reason. Do you know, it's in an area of outstanding natural beauty. There's a national park there. Are any of these areas where you can hike? Totally. That's the place to go if you want to go up the hill and get lost. Oh, Muckross okay. House. Muckross House, yeah. In Killarney beautiful national beautiful park. garden to hike through. Yeah. Okay. They, have the, they have lovely forest walks there. And there's also golden eagles in the park. So it's very, you know, a lot of good wildlife to check out there. And there's a nice waterfall called Tark Waterfall. They're not hugely arduous uh, hikes. So they're nice and easy. Um, right. You could stay in Killarney for a night, actually. Yeah. Or you could move on to Dingle. Choice. You'd be spoiled for choice there. And on to the Dingle Peninsula. I'd recommend two nights there because it's just magical. I'd vote for more time in Dingle and less in Killarney. Yeah, definitely. But you've got to see you, Killarney, but yeah. hang out in Dingle if you're going to hang out somewhere. Yeah, totally. Okay. Putting a star by that. <laughs> yeah. At night, Killarney <laughs> might have ten or 15,000 tourists some night, whereas Dingle would probably have 500, you know, so it's oh, much more authentic in right. that sense. But I do, I'm a big fan of Killarney as well. Then you'd enjoy Dingle. Now you're on the coast of Ireland when you're in okay. Dingle. So you drive north for about an hour up the coast. You cross the River Shannon by ferry. Or you could go on up the river into Limerick. It's where Angela's Ashes was set, if you've ever read that book. Yes, and I did. It gets a lot of bad press, Limerick, but there's lovely people there. I recommend going up there if you had the time, especially when you have okay. the car, you see. But most people who are touring there don't go into Limerick. They, they cross the River Shannon by ferry at Tarbert, T-A-R-B-E-R-T, and that takes them up into the cliffs of Moher quicker. Oh, okay. And this is your textbook, sort of rugged West Coast cliffs, the cliffs of Moher. Beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. Love to see that. 
And I'd base yourself in Galway then for a night or two and explore Connemara from there or head out to the Aran Islands. I think everybody should go out to the Aran Islands if they visit Ireland. The ferry crossings takes about 45 minutes. Okay, which islands? I'm sorry. Uh, the Aran Islands, A-R-A-N. And, okay. and you go out there, you can you can hike around or you can bicycle around. They've even got tandems. You know, the bicycle's built for two if you want. Or right, you can, right. That's a very blustery island off the west, set of islands off the west coast where you find some pretty traditional lifestyles. Yeah. And then from Galway, you're just a, a quick train or bus or drive back to Dublin and you've got yourself a good circle. Yeah. I know there's more, but for a first trip, that would be pretty yeah. darn good. And, and I would really encourage you to, if you're in that time, try and squeeze in a day or two up north, even if it's just a day trip to Belfast just to see Belfast and the Giant's Causeway there. Belfast is worth seeing. The Giant's Causeway is essential. And that's okay. a connect very well with the bullet train now from Dublin to Belfast. Yeah, oh, could, oh. Yeah. So we could do that even after we dropped off the car. Yeah, maybe. totally. Yeah. That would be the no-stress no way to do Belfast is just zip up yeah. there in the morning with a long day trip from Dublin. Right. All right, Marianne, we got to move along. Okay. Thanks for your call. Okay, thanks, Rick. And okay, have a great bye. time thanks. in Ireland. See Thank you, Stephen. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Cheers. Then I dress my crickety baby in a robe of silk and sheen that has more white lace upon it than would please an Irish queen. And then she will dance and dance and dance. Oh, then she will dance so gay. Oh, then she will dance and dance and dance. She'll dance the live long day. More about Ireland with Stephen McPhillamy is just ahead as we consider our options for enjoying the places and the people of the Emerald Isle. And as Stephen helps us to appreciate Ireland's challenges as it grapples with changing times. We're at 877-333-7425. And you can post your own travel reports and tips about visiting Ireland on our website. Just look for the message board in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Some of our listeners have sent us haiku poems they've written about the impressions that Ireland made on them. Here's some we thought you'd enjoy. Sent to us through the 15 Seconds of Fame link in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Carrie Dexter from Tallahassee, Florida, sends us this haiku about the Cooley Peninsula in Ireland's County Louth. It's home to ancient sites, the setting for a mythological saga about a first-century cattle raid called the Tain and birthplace to St. Bridget. Cooley morning. Mist. Music. Mystery rise from heartland of legends. Laura Hardin from Escondido, California, found Ireland's Hill of Tara a magical place when she first visited in 2008. She wrote this haiku to recall the music the setting inspires. Standing where the high kings sat, I look across the valley. Skylark sings. And G. Robin Smith of Everett, Washington, writes this about the Irish weather. It's odd that their sun, the traditional moist days, were not to be had. We're planning a trip to Ireland right now on Travel with Rick Steves with our guest, Stephen McPhillamy. He's one of our favorite travel guides, and while he hails from Ulster up in the north, his heart is definitely united with all of Ireland. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And it looks like we have yet another Marianne on the phone right now, this one from Southgate, Kentucky. Marianne, thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. You have a trip coming up? No, I went actually in September of 2010 with two friends. And how was that? One of the best trips of my life. We spent 10 days, started in Dublin, then got a car and drove to Kilkenny, and I actually found um, one of the castles that belonged to, I guess, my ancestors. My 
mother's father's name was Purcell. Oh, very cool. So we yeah. looked up a castle um, near um, Kilkenny, and that was fun. This was a family castle. Did you did you claim it? No. <laughs> Actually, it's for sale. <laughs> <laughs> I bet there's a lot of castles for sale in Ireland these days. Everything's, sure. everything's for it's, sale in Ireland these days. <laughs> <laughs> I read up the history of it. They said it was a, um, a hostel at one point. And then they closed that, and now it's for sale. And um, Oh, I know that castle, actually. Yeah, that was a, an international youth hostel down there in the castle. Yeah. Uh, the Purcells yeah. Were, were great Norman warriors. Yeah, that's, that's oh. my um, heritage, yeah. Oh, that's, that's impressive. <laughs> I love that about Ireland. I mean, it's, it's such a cozy island that Stephen, who lives in the north of Ireland, he goes, oh, yeah, the Purcells, they've got that castle down there. It's a fixer-upper, former yeah, youth hostel. Yeah, down there in County Tipperary. <laughs> oh, that would be cool to buy that, wouldn't it? Did you enjoy the pubs, Marianne? Yes, I did. On a pub in um, Dingle called, um, I think it was Murphy's, but um, we were sitting there, had dinner, waiting for the music, and this big group of men came in, real rowdy, loud, um, and a couple came over to us and started talking. It turned out they were from Dublin, and they were in Dingle for a stag party. When the music started, one of them came over and asked me to dance, and at first I said no, and I thought, oh, what the heck, and then I got up and danced, and surprisingly, I could jig. <laughs> nice. You did a jig in Murphy's Pub in Dingle. Yeah, I know Murphy's yes, Pub. Yes, it was fun. Which one's Murphy's? Was... Murphy's down there on the, on the harbor near the tourist office. The, yes, uh, yeah. yes, right there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really good for music. And That's a, a good yeah. one for music. Yeah. It's a little noisier yeah. than some of the other ones, yeah. I think. Yeah, good, uh, and good uh, pub food, too, there. Yeah. It was fun. That's great. Did you find when you went into the pubs that it was accessible? Did you feel awkward? or How did you, you connect, or did, did the people come to you? Um, at first, we were kind of off on our own, but I did not feel awkward at all. I felt very relaxed, and um, we were made welcome. And um, once, you know, the music starts and the people pour in, it's just fun. I mean, at Murphy's and Dingle, they actually had a, another woman from the United States. I don't remember where she was from, but she got up and sang you know, with a band, and she had a beautiful voice, and that was fun. It's a beautiful and, thing to hear the music, especially a lament uh, when somebody will sing. Oh, she was singing um, gospel. Oh, do you, know, do you know, this is very bizarre, right? I'm really sure I was there that night. Was really? was, she, was she a blonde-haired girl? Yes, yeah. she was blonde. I'm not joking, I was in the bar that same night. Oh, you were? <laughs> yeah, she's from, uh, she's from up here in Seattle, and she's a beautiful gospel voice. Oh, beautiful uh, gospel voice. Yeah, her, yeah. Name is, her name is Sarah, and she, had a, she sang Southern Gospel. Uh, yes. African American style, beautiful. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. and the band was um, Dreams of Freedom. Oh, that's right, yeah. And they, I like, I like them because they do a few good rebel songs too, and it gets the crowd going. God, that's funny. Oh, that we, is... we we were in the pub on the same night. Did you see me dancing? Yeah, I think it was me. Was dancing with you. <laughs> <laughs> well, your name's not John. I remember John. <laughs> oh, it was that night. I want to joke on Yeah, yeah, that's a cool connection. Well, Marion, you're you're illustrating the importance of getting out there and and uh, doing a jig in the pub, even if you've never done it before, and, yes. and making friends with locals. And that's a great thing about Ireland, with or without mm-hmm. the beer, you can really yeah, connect the pubs with are, people. Yeah. Yeah. This, I enjoyed myself there. We're, we're, we're very lucky to have that pub culture, aren't we? That, I, for, for visitors you know, to enjoy. I, I think you really are because you don't find that in other countries. I mean, no. there, there's little glimpses here and there, but nowhere but in Ireland can you. Oh, if I you can't go, find it at home. You know, if you if you go the first night, you're, what do they say? You're a guest, and you go the second night you're you're, you're a local. That's like, true, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you really are. Well, thanks for your call, Marianne, and, and happy travels. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Stephen McPhillamy. We're talking about Ireland, his home country. Now, you're from a Catholic family in the north of Ireland. What's the latest on the dynamic between the north of Ireland and the Republic? Well, relations are very good. Remember, in Northern Ireland, half, roughly half the community want to join with the Republic of Ireland, and the other half are quite content to stay with the United Kingdom. They're more identifying with Britain. But the relationship between Northern Ireland and the Republic at official level is excellent. All the politicians work together now. Things are very progressive. On a local level, people are getting on a lot better. So I think it's just a great time to be there. Actually. Quite an amazing statement. The politicians are working together. The people are working together. Oh, absolutely. We have a, a parliament in, our, in Belfast called the Northern Ireland Assembly. And they meet with the Irish Parliament all the time and share pleasantries and have meetings and come up with joint funding initiatives. Because at the end of the day, we share an island and we have to work together or we'll sink together. What are some of the issues that are best dealt, you know, in, in coordination? 
Well, everything from tourism to uh, health, a big issue right now is the tax situation because in the Republic of Ireland, corporations pay around 13% tax. And in Northern Ireland, their corporate tax is the UK one, which is in the mid-20s, I think 25 or 26%. So if you're a big American multinational, you're going to go into the Republic of Ireland. You're not going to go two miles up the road to Northern Ireland. How's the northern part of Ireland dealing with this? Well, we have asked the British government, the Northern Ireland Assembly has asked the British government to allow us to drop our tax rate to match the Republic's rate. Ah, to give you a benefit compared to your partners in the United Kingdom. Yeah, and because we have an unfair disadvantage Disadvantage. because we have a a neighbour on our island who has... Yeah, you got 50% higher taxes for a corporation. Yeah, so the British government has basically said, well... You can do that, but then you're going to also have to stop taking grants from central government in London. Because I would imagine the typical person from Northern Ireland was getting more from London than somebody from England in in certain ways. Oh, absolutely. I think we get a subvention every year of about £8 billion to Northern Ireland from, you know, we don't pay that in tax to them, but they give it to us. So it's a little bit interesting. You guys are expensive for London. Oh, totally. And the thing too is now... If we get a tax break, then the Scottish and the Welsh parliaments are going to, they will want it and they do want it too. Well, if you get a tax break and it sort of gooses your economy, that might be a good, you know, controlled experiment for uh, the rest of Britain. Yeah, absolutely. But just overall, the relations between Northern Ireland and the Republic have never been better. Like in May of 2011, the Queen of England came to visit on our first ever official visit and... To, to few, the Republic. To the Republic of Ireland, to Dublin. There's a few protests, but overwhelmingly there was massive support. She was received politely. Oh. That wouldn't have happened a generation ago. No, the visit just wouldn't have happened a generation ago at all. But okay, your relations with England are better than ever, but your relations with the Vatican are worse than ever. Yeah, that's uh, quite ironic how things have really changed, isn't it, in the last... Yeah, what's the latest yeah. on this uh, spat with the Vatican? Well, you see, Ireland, of course, is still overwhelmingly Catholic, but people are just very sort of sick and tired, basically, of some of the abuses that went on at institutional level and they were just sort of tired with the whole thing. It seems like the Vatican at top levels covered up quite a lot of scandals that were going on and a lot of Irish people just aren't impressed. But for the first time ever, our government basically has told the Vatican to sort of back out of Irish affairs. Well, these would be issues of personal liberties, uh, divorce, contraception, abortion, these kind of things? Uh, No, more so to do with the... Like we were having criminal investigations into bishops and priests who would have abused children and the Vatican were sort of... uh, was covering them up for want of a better word or moving priests around and basically at the top level telling the Irish church not to let these criminal investigations happen. So our government basically has told them to keep their nose out. I think now for the first time we've withdrawn our ambassador to the Vatican, the Republic of Ireland. So they didn't set very well with the Vatican when you said we want to do these investigations and you need to let us. And getting back to these personal issues, because I know it's an issue in our country, uh, you know, divorce, abortion, contraception, family planning and everything. Today, how does Ireland differ, just in a, in a rough sort of sense, compared to France or England or Germany? I think we're still quite conservative in terms of some of our laws. Uh, we have legalised divorce. We have contraception now. There hasn't been any legal abortions performed, however, in the Republic of Ireland. It's still quite a grey area. And we'd be one of, I think, the only country in the European Union that don't offer abortion. So probably to... the strictest place in Europe would be Ireland from a, oh, a, absolutely, an abortion point yeah. of view. And I've heard that our health minister, when he or she is at conferences with other ministers from throughout Europe. They're kind of ridiculed, made fun of as if they're from the Stone Age. But I I don't know, it's hard to say. We had a referendum in the 80s about abortion and the overwhelming majority of the population said no. So some people are saying, what did the government give us another referendum? Sometimes the church actually say that, let's have another referendum so that we can actually ban it completely in Ireland. If a woman's life is in danger, there are certain circumstances where it Mm -hmm. could be performed. But we have 400 women who go to Britain every week for abortions. 400 a week? And they'd be going off to Liverpool or Manchester or London to abortion clinics there. So some people in Ireland who are pro-choice are basically saying, why are we handing our problem on to other societies that's deal with it at home? So it's a, it's, a, it's a big one for the future. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about Ireland with my good friend and fellow tour guide Stephen McPhillamy. And Stephen's been leading groups around Ireland for a long time. How long have you been guiding around Ireland? Uh, Fifteen years I've been circumnavigating my island. Now you used to be just doing tours in your hometown. Yeah, just up in, in the north, up in Derry. Londonderry is a sort of a harsh history. It was a sort of an epicenter of a lot of the struggles during the, the Troubles. If you're sympathetic with the, uh, the English, you'd call it Londonderry, right? Hi. How's Derry doing now? Well, Derry's doing great. It's never been more positive. The violence is pretty much all gone. We're not all having group hugs or anything, but we are getting on fairly well. Politicians are getting on good. We've just been voted the UK City of Culture for 2013. 
So we have a big festival. That's a big deal. It's quite a big deal, actually. And it's ironic because about 80% of the city population don't want to be part of the UK. But everyone's embracing this festival, which is the UK City of Culture. We're the first city ever named. Wow. Well, it'll be good for the economy. Yeah. Oh, great. There'll be festivals and and there's... Well, it is a big year-long festival, but there's art exhibitions and concerts and music is a huge part of our culture. And um, every child in the city is to be given a musical instrument that year. You know, so it's every child... That's huge. We have a bridge now in the middle called the Peace Bridge. It was just built. 14 million euros it cost. Uh, The European Union paid for it, not the British or not ourselves or anything like that. But uh, it's called the Peace Bridge and it's right in the middle of town. It it lets the Protestant people from one side come across and Catholics from one side go across. So you got the Peace Bridge, which is, you know, positive and hopeful, but you've also got a lot of infrastructure from the Troubles, don't you? A lot of uh, fortifications and police stations and lookouts. Yeah, uh, most of it was dismantled around 2004, so a lot so it's of it's been gone. been dismantled and, physically, that's and there, great. Uh, to be honest, if you're going through Derry and you didn't see all the political murals, you'd probably not know that a conflict ever happened if you were an outsider. But I was going to uh, ask about the political murals. I find these really fascinating and powerful art, even though they remind us of a difficult time. Are those murals protected? Are they going to stay up, or are they going to whitewash them over to try to forget about the troubles? No, the, the, the murals will always stay, because not only are they, they have an important social role, but they have an economic role, too, because people actually go to see them. I would, so, yeah. yeah. So the murals will never disappear. But I think the content of them has changed a lot. There's a big move now where if we're a peaceful society and we're trying to work together, you can't really have murals of men with machine guns and masks. It doesn't reflect the, kind of the society. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And as much as it might be a tourist attraction and it might attract young Basque or American teenagers or whoever to come along and look, we also have to say, is this the message we want to be putting across? It's a remnant of the past, and the past wasn't always good in Northern Ireland. Did you say Basque? Yeah, we get a lot of Basques there. And, Why is that? Uh, Catalans, because they're from a highly politicized part of Europe, you know, Northern Spain, where they feel an identity with the, the Northern Irish who want to break away from the UK. See, I noticed that when I was in Northern Ireland. I never noticed so many Basque travelers and, and young Catalan people. And, and then it occurred to me, well, they have a sort of an empathy with the struggles of the uh, victims of the tyranny of the majority in Northern Ireland. And it makes sense that they would go up there and, and uh, hang out with their comrades in arms almost. Absolutely, yeah. And, and it's, I run a youth hostel there in Derry. And when I look at the stats of different nationalities, you know, number one would be American. Number two is Spanish. Um, when they come in, we all because they book online on that drop-down box where they select their country, so they'll tick nationality Spanish. So when they come in, we're like, hola, welcome, Spanish. And they're like, no, we are Basque, we are Catalan. Because <laughs> no, they don't have that option on the drop-down box. They, so they have the to box. say Spanish. Yeah, yeah, had they yeah, had a well, Basque, you got to fix your drop-down box. Man. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of beautiful things about Ireland. I think one thing that distinguishes Ireland is what people would you know, often call the gift of gab, but really it's an art of conversation. And it goes back, doesn't it? I mean, tell us about the, the Shanaki and that, that whole dimension of Irish culture. My ancestors put a lot of importance on the Shanaki. Shanaki means storyteller. And the Shanaki would drift around Ireland going from house to house, castle to castle, and would earn his keep or her keep by telling stories. That's how they would you know, get their accommodation and if you think about it, it's a really cool way to travel back in those days. They'd be traveling around, and that's how they would get their lodgings and their bed paid so for. So somebody might f- play the piano for dinner or, or sing a song for dinner, but historically an Irish person would tell a story for yeah. dinner. When the Shanachie would come into the house, he or she would be put, usually he, the old Shanachies, would be put beside the fire, and neighbors would be invited in, and you'd, you could have 20 or 30 people there, or maybe 50 people around this fireplace listening to the stories. Now, these stories were set stories like that the Shanachie would have practiced. They weren't just always, from my research, that they they weren't ad-lib. These stories could be three hours long. And this was kind of a folk history? Yeah, they would basically sit there and people would say, they either would like offer a menu of the stories that the people could pick. Oh, really? So you could say, I want to hear the story about so-and-so. Yeah, but the Shanachie would give a list of the stories that he had. His repertoire. His repertoire, yeah, of stories. And you'd basically, it'd be like an iPod, you'd select your story. Now, how did your father instill in you this sort of passion for storytelling? Well, see, I got my passion for storytelling from my grandfather, who I would say was a Shanachie, even though he was a postman by profession. You know, he would take me with him in the post van, going all around East Donegal. You know, he'd be delivering the letters, I'd be delivering the letters, but we stopped at least 50 times on every run to tell, he'd tell stories and to gather new stories. He's dead now. I don't think he knew if I was listening or not. Sadly, I never got a chance to tell him, but I spent maybe two or three years with him going around in his post van, collecting hundreds of stories from him 
and from other old Irish guys, you know, full of full of wisdom. And I must have heard 10,000 stories over the years. And I always find myself, I'll be driving along on the tour bus in the summer in Ireland, and I find these stories just popping up from everywhere. It's like I have the repertoire. You got to witness those from the old codger that lived in the farm when the the mailman came. He'd tell the story and the grandson would pick it up and now you can come here and tell your friends. uh, And sometimes I don't even realize I have all these stories in my head. I just, somebody will ask a question and I'll answer and suddenly the story will pop up and go, oh yeah, that's where I heard that. So Stephen, be a shanaki. Tell me a story. Well, here's a a true life story that happened to me. I um, often drive tour buses from Dublin up to the Giant's Causeway in a day. Which is at the far north of the Ireland. The very north of Ireland, yeah. And on a cold November morning, I got up and I got into the bus in Dublin. It was 6 a.m. Everything was pitch black. I had a 48-seater bus. The 48 tourists got onto the bus and we drove away. There was no luggage, you see, because it was a day trip. We'd be coming back the same day. Drove up to Belfast. Everyone was asleep on the bus. The sun was coming up. Got up to the Giant's Causeway, parked the bus, and everyone went off to see the causeway. Now... The Giant's Causeway in November is a very lonely place. There's nobody there. I was the only bus in the parking lot. For people who don't know, this is a, like a park on the seafront with all sorts of uh, interesting rock formations. Yeah, one, one of our biggest geological sites. Um, I'm walking around the bus, kicking the tires, waiting for the group to come back, when suddenly, from the luggage compartment at the back, I hear, Let me out! And I thought, oh dear God, it's a human voice coming from the luggage compartment. So anyway, I went over and opened up the trunk or the boot, as we call it. And this old Irish guy jumps out, you know, a homeless person, climbs out, rubs his eyes. He's obviously been in there for hours. Rubbing his eyes, he said, God, I never thought I was going to get out. And he rubs his eyes. Where am I? Where am I? What part of Dublin's this? And I said, it's not Dublin, Egypt. This is Northern Ireland. You're seven hours <laughs> north. And he said, huh? I said, look over there. That's Scotland, for God's sake. He goes, Scotland? I've never seen Scotland in my life. I said, well, you've seen it now. He he climbed in the night before in Dublin, the luggage compartment wasn't locked. It was oh, it was lashing just sacking rain. out in the bus. Yeah, so he, he opened up the luggage compartment, climbed in and pulled it shut. But when he pulled it shut, he couldn't open it again. And there's no handle on the inside of the luggage compartment, obviously, because Mercedes don't put handles <laughs> on the inside of luggage compartments. And uh, he said, how are you going to get me back to Dublin? He said, I've never been up here in my life. I put me back in the trunk. I said, you can't go in there. You're going to have to stay here. So I left him up there. So that was about a year ago. Uh, he's probably still sitting up there since he said, you can't. and as we're driving away he's like you can't leave me here these people won't like me around here I said you'll be grand there's a peace process now you'll be fine so it was my first stowaway experience a stowaway wow at least you could give the poor guy an Irish blessing well I could have said to him go nairi and bohorlat which means may the road rise to meet you I'm Rick Steves this is Travel with Rick Steves we've been talking Ireland with Stephen McPhillamy thanks Rick Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Keith Sticklemeyer for reading today's travel haiku. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart travel to England, Scotland, Ireland, and beyond. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours, a monthly travel newsletter, and a world of information to help you turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. To gear up for your next adventure in Great Britain or Ireland, begin your trip at ricksteves.com.